welcome to All Talk Oncology. I'm your host, Kenny Perkins, a.k.a. The Cancer Guy. Today, we have a special guest. We have, we have gone across the globe into a different continent. We're in the UK today. We have Sally Herman visiting us from the UK to tell, you know, what it's like as a, as a caregiver and some of the things that she's gone through dealing with uh, different types of blood cancers in her family. So let's bring in Sally Herman. <laughs> Sally, how are you? Hi, Kenny, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be part of your podcast. Oh, it's, I am so grateful to have you on here. Uh, such a privilege, Sally. I, I know that you are an, you're an advocate um, for, for different types of blood cancers. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing to, to be able to have you on here and, and to give your voice on what's going on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So Sally, you know, talk to, talk to our listeners here. You know, a lot of people are dealing with different types of blood cancers. Um, you know, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. We just had a, we had a gentleman on our show. Um, Meryl, I saw. Yes, Merrill Hodge, you know, and he was dealing with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and, you know, these things come up and a lot of people, you don't know how to deal with that, right? You're not, you're not preparing yourself for that. You're enjoying your life, you know, and, you know, and I kind of got a little background about you. you. You've been here to California, you know, you're quite the traveler, you and your husband, uh, you get around, you guys used to hike quite a bit. So, you know, tell me what it was like when you got the news it was the worst curveball any diagnosis of cancer for anyone will, will understand this. And if you haven't been through it, then I know that you'll certainly sympathize. Um, we weren't expecting a diagnosis of blood cancer at all. Gav's family history is bowel cancer and he'd had some stomach pains that had been ongoing for a while. And his um, oncologist said, Gav, you haven't got bowel cancer. You've had all the tests I, I don't know where this pain's coming from and he said tell you what we'll do we'll do a ct scan and we just discount anything else so gab just said cool okay let's do it and this was mm, november time 2014 so he had a ct scan and the results took a while to come back so i was working that evening and at this point i would highly recommend that anyone who goes for just regular results on a CT scan doesn't go on their own because Gav went on his own and it, it was then he was told we found a lymphoma and, and neither of us knew what that meant. Gav came back, uh, it was dark, it was late, he was in tears, uh, it was icy outside and we took the journey straight back to hospital because he'd gone deaf at the point of diagnosis. He, he said the, the room just span, he just lost his grip on listening he couldn't take it in he just he even bought the bit of paper home on a post-it note a lymphoma just so he wouldn't forget wow. so uh yeah it was it was terrifying because it, we weren't expecting it and weirdly he had had blood tests previous to the ct scan that had come back completely clear or as in normal there was no worrying signs in his bloods so to be diagnosed with a, a stage four blood cancer was shocking. Yeah. I'm not sure how it is in the UK here. We, we, have to little, we have to wait for the diagnosis, right? You do the scan and whatnot. But it sounds like there, they gave it to, gave it to you right away? Well, they said that on that 
particular time they said it, it we found a late a lymphoma we need to do more tests so then it was a very long drawn out procedure over Christmas where he had bone marrow biopsies um, lymph node biopsies I called it north south east and west <laughs> at the front um, and we didn't actually get the the actual diagnosis so we knew it was lymphoma and we knew it was blood cancer but we, I mean, it was, you couldn't Google anything. Not that I would ever recommend anyone Google. Dr. Google is not our friend. <laughs> so we didn't, we, we threw our phones away. There's no point until you, you're, this is what I call the free fall time, the free fall weeks. You are, you're told you're ill. You don't know what's wrong with you. You've gone for tests and you are now in free fall and you don't know if you're going to get a parachute. And that's exactly how it felt for us. We were just in free fall oh until the 2nd of January when uh, we walked into the doctor's office. And this is another reason why I like to speak about it because the diagnosis, well, you'll know this, it sets you on a path. How you're delivered that, that diagnosis really sets your mind on a path. And ours was horrendous. <laughs> we walked in and he said, well, Gav, I expect you've Googled it. And A, no, we hadn't Googled it. You told us not to, and we didn't know what to Google anyway. And he said, oh, well, I can't cure you. You've got stage four follicular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's incurable. You've maybe got five to eight years on a good wind. That was how the diagnosis was delivered. And I won't, I, I find it really hard even now to forgive that oncologist for that diagnosis. It took a long time to not think Gav was in immediate peril and was about to die. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah, my it was bad. That's overwhelming. And, and, and when you're looking for someone to, to kind of help you out, that's the, that's the bedside manner you got there, huh? It, it was short, honestly, Kenny, it was, it was awful. And I think that's, that's why I'm so passionate now to help people. I, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a mom and a wife over here in the UK doing my thing. And I have since found out so much about follicular lymphoma, even down to, um, the diagnosis, the, you know, you have to wait quite a while sometimes for this diagnosis. And I've since found out if you've got a, a raging aggressive type of blood cancer, you'll be called back within hours. But if you've got an indolent blood cancer that's slow growing and non-aggressive, they have to grow this stuff, don't they, on a Petri dish. Yeah. And it, it takes weeks for it to do its thing because it's so slow. Some blood cancers, you can see them under the microscope, can't you? It's just like doing that. I just always like him to Gavs. It's out the back going, oh yeah, well, I'll do it in a minute. It's a slow thing. So I think that's, again, now I understand why the three-week wait was the three-week wait because they discounted everything else. And at the end of the day, that's what they're left with. That's what's grown, you know, on the dish. So even understanding why you have to wait, we weren't even, that wasn't explained to us. Yeah. We just thought, oh, they just can't, you know, it's a bit slow. It's over Christmas. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, yeah. so here you are, you're, you're getting ready to enjoy your family as close to that, close to the holidays where people, you know, gather together and, and join themselves. And then you get hit with this horrendous news. Yeah. You know, and so the kids were young at the time. Oh. They were 11, 16, 18. You know, they were, our youngest was 11, you know, Father Christmas is, is coming <laughs> no matter what. And so we smiled when people were looking and cried when people weren't. Yeah. It was it was horrendous. The Christmas was, you know, you normally put on a bit of weight at Christmas and eat all the chocolates. We both lost weight that Christmas just through worry. 
So what goes through your mind at this point, right? Because obviously the, the news from the physician kind of gave you where there's no hope. That's what it kind of sounded like. How did you transition that? And how did you, you know, take that information in and go, no, we're going to, we're going to do something different than that. Well, I, we, we're lucky here. We've got Macmillan nurses and our Macmillan nurse, I put it that she hoovered up the debris from the fallout from our oncologist's delivery of the diagnosis. So she sat us down and she just explained with, with follicular lymphoma, the reason it's incurable is not because there's no hope. It's, it's not, you're not, you're not gonna die of it anytime soon. It's not a terminal diagnosis. And she explained, um, actually, I, I, after we had a chat with her, I thought, right, how can I, how can I reset our minds? Mm-hmm. How, how can I just think you've got this thing hanging over you that at some point it could transform into something aggressive, in which case he would need treatment immediately or he'd need a stem cell transplant. He did have immunotherapy. I'll come on to that in a sec. But I thought, how can we how can we re reset this? So I thought about other diseases and illnesses that are incurable, which I came down to, Gab wasn't that impressed because he said, Sal, it's not asthma, but in my head, it, it, it works and it might help someone listening. So asthma is a very serious illness, isn't it? And if you're not treated correctly at the time of an attack, it could be fatal. So it's, it's incurable but you probably won't die of it because you'll be treated at the point of an attack. Follicular lymphoma, it's similar. You live completely normally between attacks. If it raises its head, you'd have treatment, squash it back down again and carry on. And I think with every other cancer that you know of, or most others, you'll know more than me, if you're diagnosed at stage four and they're saying, we're not gonna treat you, you kind of think, well, that's it. I'm beyond treating, there's no hope. But with follicular lymphoma, it wasn't affecting, and it was in his tummy and uh, slightly in his bone marrow, but it wasn't affecting him. In fact, his tummy pains have since been diagnosed as something else. It's nothing to do with cancer. Mm-hmm. So it was found by accident. Most people's are follicular lymphoma is found by accident, and it's usually stage four when it's found, just meaning it's in two places. So if it's not affecting you, you don't need treatment. Think of the asthma analogy again. There's no point puffing when you're not having an attack because it's not going to stop the next attack. So all of that, plus thinking, well, actually, (laughs) we're all terminal. Every single one of us will die of something. So that's your terminal bit sort of dealt with. And obviously, if you have a terminal cancer diagnosis, completely different ballgame. But that's how I reset it in my mind that you can be checked out. It's not terminal. It's completely treatable and treatable when he needs it rather than everyone jump on it like you would with a normal stage four cancer in your body if you were diagnosed tomorrow with something. So it, it turns everything you think you know about cancer on its head and it's quite exhausting telling your family and everyone he's got stage four cancer, but it's not terminal and he doesn't need treatment yet. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. You're like, you get hit with that news, but then what? Right. Yeah, now we're not going to treat you. And in fact, they did, we did get treatment. So he was on uh, watch and wait for a few months. 
And I, I say that's, well, you might call it active monitoring, you might call it a watch and wait. So basically they just keep an eye on you, do your blood tests, have an appointment with your haematology oncologist every few months. But we found that quite hard to cope with because he was at that point still having tummy pain. So our oncologist said, you know what, let's do some immunotherapy. So um, you'll know this, but the, um, the frontline treatment for follicular lymphoma is um, a chemotherapy called R-CHOP. There's also a slightly less harsh one I think called R-Bendamustine. And the R stands for rituximab. And that's the immunotherapy. So that's what Gav had. He had immunotherapy for two years, which is a lot less hard on his system. Mm-hmm. And it squashed it, squashed it right back down. Our shark's back down sleeping again. Yeah, because that was going to be my next question. As you went through the immunotherapy, you know, as you're getting prepared for this and you found this to be, okay, let's, let's take this direction. You know, how did he tolerate that? Um, we were both quite scared um, because when you, it's not particularly called chemotherapy here when you have the immunotherapy, although I know it is in other countries. So we walked out of the doctor's office with that, your chemotherapy record, and you just look at it and go, okay, things have got serious. Um, <laughs> he, he was quite, he had four um, infusions. So every week, for a month, he would go in and be hooked up to the drip, the nine hour procedure. I think we were in hospital probably 12 hours each time we went. Um, And the first time he did have a reaction, he had where his cancer was found was in his, is it called your mesentery? Is your mesentery, anyway, up in your tummy. And that's where he reacted. He had terrible tummy pains. They had to slow the drip right down and they were expecting some sort of reaction. So his reaction, in my world, I just imagine, well, that's where the cancer is and it's going straight in and it's going to, you know, eat it all like Pac-Man. Um, <laughs> but once they got that sorted out, the second, third and fourth were much better and they upped his antihistamine and just knocked him straight out. So he slept through most of it. <laughs> nice. Now, so, now, he's the one going through the treatment, but I'm sure that stress for you to see your husband going through something like that has to be through the roof. So how are you, what's going through your mind? And then what are you doing to manage some of those things that are coming in? Because you're, like you said, you're a a wife, a mom of three. I'm quite proactive. So I, when he was knocked out, Zonko, having his treatment, I did start to think, right, what would save his life if he needed his life? You know, if this rituximab doesn't work and it ended up being a two-year course, um, the rest of them were done inje- uh, just injections into his tummy. So it was much quicker and it made him feel less ill. It was in and out, in and out within two hours. Um, and we were lucky to have it offered as an injection. Some people still have to have the drip if, if they're having the two year course. So I had a lot of time to, to think. And I, I did think like, what, what else, what is this with blood cancer? Why were, his blood, why were his bloods all normal and he's got stage four blood cancer? How does that happen? what could save somebody's life? Because years before, let's rewind to when I was about 25, my uncle was diagnosed with um, acute myeloid leukemia and he died two weeks after diagnosis. I don't think he even managed to get as far as day two of chemo and, and he died. It was a really aggressive version of that type of leukemia. 
And I remember being terrified of blood cancer. I would, I was, whenever I heard anyone talk about it, I stick my head in the stand because if you get blood cancer, you die. And of course, we, you know, that's not true, but that's what happened to him. So that was my yardstick. So I was terrified that that would happen to Gav. So I started being brave and not Googling, but through my filter of my Macmillan nurse, who I spoke to a lot and safe places online and also our, um, our doctors and nurses, I started to really look at stem cells and stem cell transplants as might, it might be in our future that if he relapsed and chemo didn't work or whatever, he's young, he's 50 now, he's diagnosed at 45, um, a stem cell transplant could be in our future. So I started being quite positive and looking at how do stem cells work? How can somebody save somebody else's life by means of a stem cell transplant? And I was, even just the words gave me the heebie-jeebies. I didn't even know what the process was. I thought, oh God, that sounds like some horrible operation with nerves and in your back or something, I just, you know. And I just thought, okay, let's look at it. So I did. <laughs> so that looking at the different options that you, that may, uh, that Galvin may have needed kind of helped you with your mindset as far as calming down and not thinking the worst. Because I mean, as you brought out your your uncle, knowing what he had and going, oh my goodness, this can happen to my husband, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so being able to be proactive was, was one of the great things that you've done, right? Yeah, definitely. And also the further, I do feel like the further we got from the diagnosis, and Gav wasn't going downhill. He was, he was good. He was working in between treatments, all sorts. The further we got from the diagnosis, the more we trusted his body again. So every single time that we got a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit further from that awful day, the awful day, yeah. we trusted his body again. And that definitely helps up here that Nothing bad's happened. We're still clinging on to our little life raft and we haven't sunk yet. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, if something really bad happens, like a cancer diagnosis, you can't think too far ahead. You can't think, right, we're going to go on holiday in three years time. You have to learn, bring it in. Let's just do next week. He's, he's up and running. He's at work. He's fine. He's having his treatment. Let's just step by step and I think that helped too. just not learn to be patient and don't just go straight off to the end game because it's very easy in fact I know that I found it really hard to sleep because at night when every, everyone's quiet and your mind goes over you can almost indulge yourself and your mind will play tricks on you and you will go straight to worst case scenario you go straight to that's it Sure. he's dead he's gone and you have to remind yourself of your of your now that's not happened it's nowhere near happening don't let your mind indulge yourself so I came up with this um I came up with a sleep technique and I taught myself how to not worry a night I've written it down as a blog post to help other people and it really works you just fill your mind with stuff build a wall do whatever you want to do just fill your mind and don't let those bad thoughts come in because that's the time, isn't it? When we all worry, everything's worse at night, isn't it? If you wake up at 3 a.m., things are bad, aren't they? They're really bad. By eight o'clock, you're like, oh God, I don't know what I was worried about. 
You're not alone in that. And, and that's good for my listeners, right? I mean, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're trying to get through those, those dark thoughts, you know, it's as you're, what you're saying is it's good to stay in the moment. And then what else were you were able, what else were you able to do to keep you, keep you present? It's, it's the whole thing of don't go fast forwarding. You just can't fast forward. You, you, as a, as a human, we always just try and go, yeah, but what if, what if, and you have to stay present. You have to know your truth, know what is happening right now, right now. This is what's happening. This is the treatment. Da, da, da. You, you can't make stuff up. It's um, a friend who's an amazing psychotherapist said to me, you can't make stuff up because the worrying won't protect you from if the worst case scenario happens. Mm. Worrying isn't going to protect you from that. It's just going to make you tireder when you get there. So if you can somehow learn to shutter yourself off from all the fear and it's the anxiety, it's a hundred percent anxiety. If you can find some mechanisms to help you cope. So you're not constantly going straight to worst case scenario. I found that help for me. And, and for me, it was nighttime worries. And that's why I learned my little routine of um, I build a wall around myself and your wall can be anything. It can be big polystyrene bricks. It can be just proper little builder's bricks. It can be made of balloons. It can be anything you like. And you build the wall. And that if a worry comes in from the side, you build the wall at the side. And then you build the wall from that side. And then if the DPD delivery man comes and delivers you a worry, it's the wrong side of the wall. It can't get to you. <laughs> So that's how I coped. And I think by keeping my mind busy, eventually you go to sleep, don't you? You end up in a weird dream world and you drop off and you, it takes a lot of doing. It takes a lot of doing because your mind wants to indulge all the fear and you can't let it. Sure. You know, Sally, it's been said, you know, as, you know, as caregivers, whether it be friends or wife or some family, sometimes seeing our loved ones getting diagnosed with cancer, there's a guilt that comes over us. Yeah. You know, did you did you experience any of that? It, it, it's a guilt, but it's for me. It so as Gab's wife, I can't speak for Gab because his cancer journey is his cancer journey. But as his wife, who loves him and has loved him for years, I feel like it doesn't matter which one of us was diagnosed. He would disagree because he'd say, "How can you know how I feel?" But I feel, sometimes I feel a guilt even speaking about it because it's not my, it's not my cancer, but it's our story. So I have to get over that because by talking about it, by talking about the elephant in the room, by saying Voldemort out loud, we're gonna desensitize it. We're gonna make it less scary. And anyone, anyone who's been in that lonely boat, all you wanna do is find someone else who's in the same boat as you. So yeah, it is a sort of guilt, but to me, it wouldn't have mattered which one of us it was. But I know as Gav, the one with the diagnosis, he would not see it like that. But I can only see it from my side because I'm the one <laughs> on this side. For sure. It's difficult. And I'm sure other, other partners might say the same. It's, they'll feel so strongly that it wouldn't matter which one of you had it, but I would imagine the one with a diagnosis would say, Poppycock, you don't know how it feels. <laughs> you know, you're not alone in that though, you know, Sally. You know, a lot of a lot of the loved ones and the caregivers, they they take that on. And it's it is it is you and them going through the journey. 
you know, and, and that's, and that's why I say to people, you know, it's so important to gather a team, you know, because you're not alone in that. And though we know it was Gavin that's going through that, through the treatments and whatnot, but you're right there. And it's, it's as if, it's as if you're going through treatments as well. So, you know, it's very, it's very common. And, and it's nice to know that you, you felt that certain type of way, you know, and, and being able to be there for him during that time, you know? Yeah. I mean, if, like we've got to this stage now where he just sees his oncologist, hematologist about every nine months to a year. And I still want to go. I, I'm still the one asking the questions, taking the book, writing the things down. And last time he said, I'm going to go on my own. I'm like, how can you, you can't do that. <laughs> and of course he can. And he did. So, one one thing that I found really helpful, I don't know whether it's a good point time to say this, but sure. we have this, we have this book, we have this notebook here. Mm. And we've been writing this for <clears throat> no correction. I've been writing in it for six years. <laughs> every single conversation we have on the phone, every single appointment, and it's really useful because you remember stuff differently. And if you've written it down fresh out of an appointment, like Gab's gone, we didn't say that. And I'm like, hang on a minute. <laughs> I think you'll find he did. I wrote it down. But what's funny is the appointment he went to on his own I said right you've got the book here's the pencil in it <clears throat> write everything down he came back with what just the date of the next appointment that's it just the date of the <laughs> oh, too much, Sally. it's too much right too much so I I do feel like um I call myself his Rottweiler Kenny because I feel like I, I, I can chat, you, you know, you found this out. Um, but when we went to appointments, that oncologist who gave us the terribly worded diagnosis, <clears throat> he was the kind of oncologist, hematologist that he, uh, how can we put this? <laughs> he was just really old school. And if I had a question, I could feel my voice. Go I shouldn't, you shouldn't feel like crying the moment you walk into the room with a question, you shouldn't feel like you can't ask it. So I, I, another coping mechanism I've got now is I ask the question, even if it's the most stupid small question, by the time you get home, if you haven't asked it, suddenly it's a huge question mm. and you really wish you'd spoken up. Mm. So on one of the earlier appointments, I'd sit there with my book, with my tied up tight little voice, desperately trying not to cry, to get it out. Because Gav was so like, let's just go in and out, just done with it. Like, we need to talk to this guy, we need to find stuff out. And in one of the appointments, it was probably 18 months along from the diagnosis, I plucked up courage to ask for a second opinion. And that was, that was, big because I did get told off in the car on the way home <laughs> however we were referred to one of the top guys um at the Royal Marsden here and it was him who reset our minds and said Gav looking at your pathology looking at how you've reacted so well to rituximab looking at your age and your flippy score which is done on your age and your health and stuff like that um I don't think we're going to have a problem and if we do we can fix it and uh so anyone really struggling with their diagnosis or their physician pluck up courage and ask for a second opinion because you might find it's worded differently and you can then cope mentally far far better you know and that's a that's a good thing because i i think a lot of people are a little nervous to get that second opinion you know you almost feel like it's um dismissive or 
uh, something, you're not trusting the doctor that's there in front of you. You feel like if you upset him, he's not going to treat you as well or something. But no, that's not the case at all, is it? No, no, it's not. And it, it helps with peace of mind too, right? Hugely, yeah. To hear, to hear the top guy at the Marsden say, you're going to be okay. And um, go away and probably when you come back as an old man, we'll sort you out. That, you know, it just, for Gav's type of lymphoma, this is for follicular lymphoma, it was um, a huge, huge, huge relief. Sure. Now, let me ask you this, you know, going through this, getting, getting a different opinion and then getting that type of news is a night and day experience, right? Oh, completely, yeah. So I felt like we had two very dark years and the lights came on with that second opinion. And we still, you know, he was still having treatment at that point and we were still in out of hospital and he still had symptoms and tweaks and pains. And we, you know, we never are you, I think with any cancer diagnosis, you're never okay all the time. And every single ache and pain, you're like, are you okay? What's this? And you write it down and, you know, so it's never quite as simple as you're ill or you're better with a incurable cancer diagnosis it's ongoing i'm like a hawk i watch him like a hawk yeah. got a lump in your neck well you know you're all right <laughs> so it's never black and white but this guy definitely turned the light on him and it was a bar nicer place to be for sure you know it's let me ask you since you've gone on this journey how has your your team i, I call it the team right the people that have supported you along the way how has how has that grown? How how has that looked from when he first got diagnosed till to current? So the uh, the doctor I was telling you about has since retired, and we've got an amazing hematologist oncologist now called Dr. Stella, who is fabulous. I um, email her secretary if ever I need anything, and we sort it out. And I couldn't have done that with um, the other doctor. Um, as far as the team goes, we've stepped back because the treatment finished four years ago. Um, during that two years, we became so familiar. You would walk into St. Martha's Ward and you'd be, this is nice. Whoever would think that would be nice to go into pre-cancer? I would not even want to know the name of the oncology ward, let alone go in and think it was nice. <laughs> but it was so comforting. It was so warm. The nurses, we always had the same. We always had Cherry. She'd always do the injection and someone and they would say, hi, Gav, come through. Hi, Sally, cup of tea. So you feel so cocooned in this, mate, these people, I, I call them angels. I say they've literally got their wings tucked in their knickers. They are so nice. And you feel so safe. You're sitting there, he's in a chair. There's a lady over there with a cold cap on having a breast cancer treatment behind the curtain. And you actually feel like you're in the nicest place in the world. And when the treatment ends, I felt like we were little sparrows being pushed off the ledge. Go and fly. We were like, we can't go. We like it here. <laughs> so the team were absolutely vital, just vital to your mental well-being, your feeling of safety. And the phone number in the book, just ring up if you've got a problem or if your temperature spikes or anything. But now we're four years past that. So we're back to Dr. Stella every nine months or so. Awesome. And let me ask you, Sally, you know, it's nothing like having that comfort, not having that support. But now as you've gone through it, here you are four years past, how, how do you celebrate life now? Oh, crikey. 
you know, everything changes. Um, I think when you get when you get a diagnosis, suddenly all the little things just fall. Everyone says this is such a cliche, but it's so true that cliches are true things, aren't they? That's why they're said a lot. Um, everything just falls away. The, the silly things you were worried about or the people that you were worried about, you know, silly stuff. I always say it's people who matter, not things. You do get, I would say, um, lax. You know, when, when Gab was first given like his first clear scan of, you know, it's not gone, it's just asleep. We can't see it move, so you're good to go. You know, you think, oh, I'm gonna grasp every day. But you do become, you know, we're four years on now, we're lax, we're moaning about work and we're, we don't want to go out, it's raining. Yeah, you know, that cancer diagnosis comes back, bang, you're outside in the rain, you don't care what the weather's doing, you're just outside enjoying life. And you have to remember that. I almost say, I mean, we are really lucky. We got the clean end of a dirty stick and, you know, we're holding on to that clean can you see me (laughs) we're holding on to that clean end and you have to remember that you have to remember that that dirty stick can spin at any time and uh, you got the you got the dirty end so we're just grateful we're just so grateful that uh in a way of course we'd rather we didn't have this in our lives hanging over our heads but let's look at the positive of it i feel like we've stepped through some invisible shield and we can see the point of everything feel lucky that we can see that and I've read that a lot of people say that when they've had a diagnosis and they've survived or they are surviving and they're thriving they almost say I'm the person I am because of this and I'm lucky that I've got this in my life or I wouldn't be this person and that sounds a bit weird doesn't it yeah but it also helps you to appreciate things that you weren't able to before right a hundred percent even even just like walking the dog in the rain, you just think, aren't I lucky? A friend, um, a couple of years ago, she died of bowel cancer and she would be loving being able to walk her dog in the rain. So it, you know, it just, it slots everything into such clarity. And um, I'd rather it wasn't in our lives, but if it's gonna be, let's make room for it and let's find the good bits because aren't we lucky? There are good bits. And it's almost like I, I liken it to living with a shark. We, we're all swimming around in our lovely swimming pools of life. And unfortunately, we know that Gav's got a shark in his pool and it came up and it snapped him, but it's asleep again down there now. And any one of us could be swimming above a shark. We just don't know it. So you've got to make the most of it, haven't you? Oh, Sally, I love your illustrations. Well, analogies. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's so nice because I, I think so many people need to hear this. You know, sometimes, Sally, I've seen this over the 20 years I've been in radiation oncology. Um, you know, the patients, they get stuck and you yeah. don't know how to move. And so to, to hear how, you know, you're able to move forward and then celebrate life, you know, yeah. and finding things to be grateful for is so important. And I think with with this kind of weird incurable treatable you've got cancer we'll never call you clear kind of diagnosis my default reaction was to swim against the tide why why us go back go back go back to how it was let's go up swim upstream because we want it back to how it was we liked how it was how dare this come in Mm. but again that just makes you so tired once we both accepted it 
and made space for it. You know, it's, it's the unwelcome dinner guest, but you're going to have to make a space for it because he's not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Once you've done that and you bob back down the stream, you're not swimming against the tide anymore. Everything becomes easier. And I think acceptance, one, there's no hurry in that, is there? You'll know this from your patients. They, they, back, they don't want it. They just, why me? Why me? And once you start thinking, well, why not me? It's one in two of us in the world, going to be someone. And accept it and make space. And you can't spend your whole mindset wishing it didn't happen because it did. Yeah. And you, you can't you can't live like that. You just can't. It's too tiring. You yeah. have to accept it. So tell us, what are some of the wonderful things that you and uh, your husband love to do together? What is something that just makes your heart so happy? Oh, escape to Cornwall. So Cornwall's on the West Coast and he's a surfer. He's a really good surfer, quite accomplished surfer. So he takes the surfboard. I take the dog. We go to the beach and that is where we just go we'd love to live there one day but you know who knows it's five hour drive and etc we've got the children so that yeah just being together in Cornwall that is you'll find us on a beach in Newquay at our absolute happiest with a cinnamon bun and a coffee it's quite simple <laughs> enjoying yourselves right yeah. something about the ocean that's just so rejuvenating right yeah, so grounding, especially for Gab. He always, he plugs himself, when he goes in the ocean and surfs, he comes back a different man, a new man is refreshed him. And when he was having treatment, I was, oh, I don't think, you know, you've, you've got really rubbish immune system. I'm not sure you should be swimming in the sea. And he just says, let, let me do what I need to do. So again, I had to back off and go, you know, if he wants to go surfing, that's actually really important. Let, let him do, his, he knows his limitations. I'll just stand at the side and panic. <laughs> you know so how are the kids you know how did they deal with with kind of going through that were they too young to really understand or how, how did you prepare them for that that's such a good question Kenny because um I'd read we didn't tell them but pre-Christmas we didn't tell them we they didn't have a clue we just carried on as normal it wasn't until the diagnosis we thought right now we need to tell them because otherwise we'd say daddy's got cancer but we don't know what type really mm -hmm. and that would have been a really rubbish Christmas wouldn't it um so the, the guidelines are um, make time for your children and sit down and turn the television off and all have a family chat. And that's not how we did it at all. They'd been back to college and school and one came home early from school. He was 11 and he came into the kitchen and he said, we just said, we were standing there. I was leaning against that oven and Gav was leaning against the countertop. And we said, oh, Tobes, you know, dad had an operation because we did say that dad had had a little operation because obviously he'd had his lymph node biopsies. He's in quite a lot of pain. So, you know, dad had his little operation. Um, they did find um, something a bit nasty and it, it, it's a type of cancer. And he's like this, you know, what? And we said, but it's OK because they, they can, you know, they can fix it. And, and daddy will be probably hopefully he'll be fine and blah, blah, blah. I can't remember how he worded it but his question and this is the important bit he said did dad cry and at that point Gav was honest and said no because he'd done a lot of crying but not on that day he said no no don't darling I didn't cry is your doctor worried about you no darling he's not worried about me okay that's fine can I have a bag of crisps <laughs> And the other two came in and it was very similar. And they, because they were older, they were at college. 
I, I said, look, this is the diagnosis, but can you promise me you won't Google? And I think, I personally think that when you've got any age of children, obviously you have to adjust how you say it to whatever age they are, but I will, they need to feel safe. They need to know that you're not gonna to lie to them or omit important information. If they trust you, they will feel safe. So I made it so, so clear to them. I said, don't ever Google this. You don't need to, just ask me. We will never lie to you. Dad will never be in danger and you won't know about it. So we, we just made it so, so clear that they could trust us, come to us, ask us, and we would tell them the whole truth. Um, and that's how it's been ever since, six years on, they're cool. They're really cool. In fact, you know, they don't talk about it much, but when we do, they're, they're cool with it. And they appreciated the way we told them six years on with hindsight they were like no that was that was good you didn't need to sit us that would have been scary if you'd have sat us down in a room and turned the telly off <laughs> and banished the crisps right <laughs> yeah so i that was important to us to be completely honest absolutely yeah. and that's important for the listeners too because you know yeah. sally so many times uh what i have seen some there have been cases where the patient does not want to talk to the to the family about it and it's in secret and you know you're going through that by themselves and you know or they just don't know how to I mean this is a this is something that no one prepares for and you never think that that's going to happen to you so you know to to hear how you handled it you know what great tips for those that may be going through and recently diagnosed so thank you thank you for that I think it's it's probably easier at the point of fear and diagnosis with the adults to not tell the children it's probably easier because then it doesn't you know it's it's not ha it is happening but it's not happening yeah but i think with hindsight if the children know that you haven't told them something major the trust goes and they need to trust you otherwise they're going to be off to google they're going to you know when they do find out they'll be like why didn't you tell us why and you're going to have to be accountable for that so it's probably, it could be easier at the time, but what you're doing is creating a bit of a tsunami for later down the line when they're asking why. Yeah. You know, I, I asked this, I asked this quite a bit and it's important to me and for the listeners to hear it, but you know, Sally and Gavin, they were going about their lives a certain way prior to diagnosis, right? And then you get diagnosed and we just talked about understanding the things that are important what have you guys done differently now as a, as a family, as a, as a husband, as a wife, um, what, what's different? Well, Gav tried, Gav was running his own business at the time. He still is, but um, he implemented straight away someone to help run the business because we both think stress doesn't help. Yeah. It doesn't help in your, it's not healthy for you. Is it stress? No. And whether that's got anything to do with a cancer diagnosis, who knows? But I, I believe stress, if you eliminate stress, you eliminate risk. Your, your immune system is having to cope with less if you're less stressed. So he, we were lucky he was in the situation where he could bring someone in and they could help. Um, and go on nice holiday, do nice stuff. Appreciate each other, you know, <laughs> go out for nice meals. Don't sweat the small stuff. That, that's what, that's what we, we're really lucky with six years on from the diagnosis and four years on from the ends of treatment. So I can promise 
to anyone that is diagnosed with follicular lymphoma, it won't always be the first thing you think of in the morning and the last thing you think of at night. You will always think of it in the day, but it won't wake you up like a bam, you know? So I think acceptance, see, you know, appreciating your life, yeah. trying to get help where you can get help and being really kind to yourself and not trying to do a million things. Don't look too far forward. They're, they're the things. And, you know, this lockdown, we've just had a year of lockdown, like probably everywhere in the world. You know, we've had a lovely year with the kids have been at home and we really enjoy our family. Yes. You know, I think I even seen a post where you went out and the rain was hitting you on the face and you're just like, yeah. yes, it, you know? yeah. Just and just think how lucky we are to have had that shark rise up and it didn't take him. That's, you know, we are incredibly lucky. And I know like, um, you know, we didn't ring a bell at the end of treatment or anything. Gav couldn't bear the thought of it. He said, I'm not ever going to be cured. I can't bear the thought of that's the end of treatment. Ta-da! Everyone crack open the champagne. That just meant he was okay up to now. Yeah. doesn't mean he'll be okay going forward. So we're very respectful and we're very humble in his diagnosis. You know, we're never going to presume it'll be okay. And equally, we're not always going to think the worst and just look at the sword above our heads. You can't live death by a thousand cuts either. Yeah. Well, I love the way you put it. You know, it's like asthma and all it's, you deal with it when it comes to an attack, but right now it's dormant. And yeah. You enjoy your life as 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 much as possible, and you know that that's one of the things that cancer coaching is is important. You know, one of the things that happens is, like you said, as you were getting treatments, you were like I love it here. There's, the support is there. Everyone is friendly, and then after, it's like okay, see you later. Yeah, and bye. You know, we don't need you anymore. Right. We do. And, and everyone goes okay. What what do I do now? Yeah. And and that's so this is where you come in. And that's where coaching helps, you know, because it talks about, you know, the way you started, it was not the way you're going to end up. And maybe it's a new path and maybe some things that you've always thought about, but you never gotten to, you know, and the things and the values that we have in our, in our lives, right? Because we all, we all were growing up with some type of value. And so you bring those things together and you come up with something that's amazing. And, uh, you know, because life is appreciated differently at that point, right? Yeah you've hit the nail on the head it's it's like you've been given x-ray vision on life and and actually having someone coach you through that as you leave the oncology department we don't have anything like that here and it would have been amazing to be to have someone to help you process it all you know post-traumatic and all that what just happened you know for sure for sure Sally it's such a it's such a privilege to have you on the show and uh, thank you so much for joining us here at All Talk Oncology it's been my absolute pleasure it's um you know I wish it wasn't my specialist subject yeah you know but how many how many people are you going to be able to help at this point you know that's the amazing part about it I, I hope that anyone listening will take what they need from what we've spoken about and it might reset their minds earlier than our minds were reset because I would hate 
anyone to be going through particularly the same diagnosis as Gav because that's the only one I really really know about and feel lost alone hopeless and confused as well confused and scared so I really hope our discussion has helped someone out there to know it it's gonna it's gonna be okay you're gonna be okay and you you'll be a different changed better person sure thank you for that Again, we want to thank Sally Herman who, for joining us here at All Talk Oncology, all the way from the UK. I tell you, you know, All Talk Oncology is having a global impact. We're so excited about that. You know, this is exactly what we, we want. This is our vision. This is our plan is to go global and impact people who are going through cancer because cancer doesn't discriminate. It is all across the world, right? And so we're going to talk about some of the gems that Sally spoke about. Sally talked about if you have kids, you don't want to break that trust by lying to them. You want to tell your kids what is going on, but not in a way that is going to overwhelm them with emotion, right? You don't want to do that. You want to give them, give it to them in a way that they can digest it, that they know things are going to be okay. You want to create security for your kids. And so I love the way she said that, you know, is... You don't want to lie to them because they trust you, but you let them know, don't Google it, you know, because Google can be overwhelming. It can be fear, fearful. You don't want to search what the cancer may be is basically what she was saying. Don't search it. Talk to mommy and daddy about this. And we'll talk, we'll tell you, we'll be honest with you about what's going on, but she didn't want to overwhelm them with, with information about uh, what the cancer may be, right? Keep them in the moment. They trust you. And you know, as a parent, you need to give them the information as needed in order, in order for them to not only feel included, but to know that things are going to be okay, um, if that's the case, right? And so as a parent, you know your situation and the diagnosis. How you ration that out to your kids is extremely important. I thought that was a gem that she talked about. Another thing she said is the stress, right? You know, we, we hear about stress kills, you know, stress is overwhelming on the body. And she says, you know what, keep the stress down, allow your body to heal. And so when you think about allowing your body to heal and what it's going through, you may be going through treatments, you may be having chemo, I may have had surgery, your body needs time to heal. So to stress over what can could happen or looking too far forward uh, is, not, is not what you need at this moment. What you need is to try to keep the stress down, allow your body to heal, allow your immune system to fight off any infections or anything that may be uh, potentially harming to you. You're going through something that, at this time that's rough. And so stress, we need to keep that down. And I, I love I love the way she said that. Uh, another thing she said is stay in the moment, right? She said that you know you don't want to be too far out. You don't want to fast forward into something. And if you recall what she said, at the in the middle of the night she would wake up and and think about what could potentially happen, and it may not even happen at all, right? But the thought of what could happen, it, it overwhelmed her. 
And so she had to learn how to build a wall in order to block those things out so that she would not um, overwhelm herself with things that may not even happen. And she likened it. I loved her analogy. She said, it's like an, like an asthma attack, right? You don't give a breathing treatment before the attack comes, right? It's when the asthma attack happens that you give the breathing treatment. So the same thing, you want to not look too far in the future and think about what could happen. Stay in the moment uh, and don't overwhelm yourself. And so I thought that was I thought that was an amazing part. Another thing she said was about x-ray vision. You know, having cancer is like an x-ray vision in life. It highlights what's important. You know, everything prior to being diagnosed with cancer, you know, was not important now as far as what you're dealing with. And so she says that cancer was like an x-ray vision. It gave her and highlighted what was important to her and her family. And, you know, I hope that you can take that away, being able to find things that are important to you and your family, and why you're here. Uh, things are not important. What's important is those that are surrounding by you, uh, that are giving you love. So I hope those gems help you out. There's so many more that she gave us. But those are the ones that, you know, I wanted to, you know, share. And thank you so much, Sally, Sally Herman from the UK. Thank you so much for joining us here on All Talk Oncology. And thank you for listening. And I say to all the listeners that are listening here, you are not alone in this. We are in this together. I am Kenny Perkins, aka the Cancer Guy. Get it again. <laughs>